It is very unlikely that you will be struck by lightning this year. You've got a one in a million chance, just about. Though over the course of your life, the odds move quite a bit and not in your favor. If you live to be 80 years old, your chance of being hit by lightning is just one in 15,000. Now, being attacked by a shark is even less likely than getting zapped in a storm. The chance that Bruce will make a meal out of you is one in 3.4 million. If you still don't like those odds, I can help you. Just don't go in the ocean. Problem solved. There's not too many shark attacks in a pool. The life-changing misfortune that we'll read about in Genesis tonight is even more unlikely than a lightning strike or a shark attack or anything like that. In fact, I'd go as far as saying that the con Jacob falls victim to is something that just simply can't happen to any of us. Laws against polygamy and indoor lighting play a big part in that. But even though this story feels very far removed, even somewhat outlandish in parts, it still teaches us quite a few important principles uh, about God and God's love and God's justice and how we should conduct ourselves as faith-filled people. We may not be tribal shepherds who enter into marriage contracts for multiple wives, yet these verses speak directly and authoritatively to each of us listening tonight. Of course, we know that one plus one still equaled two 4,000 years ago when Jacob was living out this passage, because that truth is forever, right? Well, God's truth revealed in Scripture and the principles that He gives us there and what He has revealed, uh, uh, you know, through these passages remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so a text like this one, which feels so far removed from modern life and our own experience, is actually a wonderful testament to the fact that God's Word is alive and powerful. Uh, It's still speaking. It doesn't matter if you're a Bedouin on the backside of a desert thousands of years ago or you live in 21st century America. It is still speaking. It is never irrelevant, never outdated, always for us and always to be listened to. And so let's take a look at this shocking turn of events beginning in verse 14. Laban said to Jacob, yes, you are my own flesh and blood. Hold there. Some commentators believe Laban was unofficially adopting Jacob, in a sense, while others think that the Hebrew indicates that Laban kind of had to be convinced that Jacob really was who he said he was. We know that Laban is not a loving family man. We know he's not a particularly honorable man or even a good man. Uh, We find him to be greedy and self-centered, conniving, willing to cheat, He treats his own two daughters not as treasures, but as stock to be milked for material gain. Even their names betray Laban's mindset. The name Leah means cow. The name Rachel means you. Uh, And so we're getting a little window into the kind of dad that this guy is and what kind of man he is as he deals with Jacob. Verse 14 continues, after Jacob had stayed with him a month, Laban said to him, just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. One source writes this, among pastoral people, a stranger was freely entertained for three days. On the fourth, he was expected to tell his name and errand. If he prolonged his stay after that, he must set his hand to work in some way. 
Bruce Waltke points out that a blood relative would work for free. Uh, Rachel works for free as a shepherdess because she's one of the family. And instead, Laban approaches Jacob as if he were any other contracted employee. A little bit of a red flag there. From the start, we see a business-like tension between these two men. Jacob was staying in Laban's home, freely eating the food at his table, probably dressed from Laban's closet. After all, Jacob had no money or resources of his own at the time. And so Jacob was doing the honorable and the decent thing. Uh, he was working and contributing to the efforts of the household. He wasn't just freeloading. But even still, after a month, Laban sends him a message, and he says, hey, don't get too comfortable. This isn't your house, and I want you to remember that. Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah, and the younger was named Rachel. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Commentators can't decide if the description of Leah's eyes is meant to be a positive thing or a negative thing in describing her. Your translation may say that Leah's eyes were delicate or weak or that they had no sparkle. Some scholars actually think that Moses was saying she had pale or blue eyes, which set her apart. The focus, though, on the physical. He's talking about Leah's eyes, and we're sort of looking through Jacob's perspective, right? He says, hey, what do you want your wages to be? And it's as if Jacob pivots over to look at these two daughters, and we're kind of looking with his eyes, and uh, Leah doesn't have a lot going for her in, in physical attributes. Maybe her eyes were nice. Maybe they weren't nice. We, we can't exactly be sure. But what we see is that... Uh, there's a focus on the physical, right? There's a focus on Rachel's physical beauty and her shapeliness. And that focus on the physical reminds us that Jacob, as, uh, as an individual, still, still has not knelt to pray. Uh, he still has not spent any time seeking the Lord, seeking His will. And again, you can go back and compare this to the time that Abraham's servant went to fetch a wife from this very household uh, from, for Isaac and how he's interacting with the Lord and petitioning the Lord and said, man, Lord, I need you to show me the way. Lord, I need you to accomplish this. Lord, I just want to be in line with what you want, which is I want whatever is best for, for my you know, family here and for our future and all of that. Jacob does none of it. He doesn't kneel to pray. He doesn't seek the Lord. He's more interested in Rachel's figure than the walk of faith. Verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel, so he answered Laban, I'll work for you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, for all my criticism of Jacob and, you know, we, the way he conducts himself, he's, he's, he's worthy of it, like we all are, but for all my criticism of Jacob, it really is true that he really did love Rachel. In fact, he had one of the most romantic and dedicated loves, not just in the Bible, but really ever recorded. Try to think of another story that can top what he's offering here and how much he's laying out here uh, because of his love. This offer, by the way, would have been double the going rate for a bride price at the time. And so he's swinging big. Of course, traditional American lore says a fellow should pay, what, three months' salary for an engagement ring? Jacob says, make it seven years' salary. I mean, this is a big deal. Jacob spent those seven years working with Laban's flocks. That's what we'll see him doing in future passages. 
And Dr. Henry Morris points out that means that he would have been able to spend a lot of time with Rachel, the shepherdess, as they worked the sheep together. And so they developed a relationship. Jacob's love grew and developed over that time. That's a great story. Now, you unmarried folks, especially the young ones, don't rush into marriage. It really makes a difference who you marry. Three times we are told in the Song of Solomon, a, a Bible book dedicated all to romantic love and marriage, by the way, three times in that book we're told, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. And so uh, it sometimes can feel hard to wait to be married or hard to go through, you know, a uh, prolonged engagement. I'm not saying you have to wait and be engaged for seven years, but it's okay to wait and make sure the Lord is leading you. How did Rachel feel about this arrangement? The text doesn't explicitly tell us, but we know that Rebecca, remember, had a say in whether she would marry Isaac or not. Uh, obviously, it's the, uh, in this culture, it was the man of the house that was making the ultimate decisions, and they were kind of given daughters away and given nieces away and those sorts of things. But remember, when, when the servant of Abraham came and said, hey, I'd like Rebecca to come and be Isaac's wife, they turned to Rebecca and they say, do you want to go with this man? And so she had a say in it, and so we can guess uh, that Rachel had the same say uh, as Rebecca would have. And so we also can guess that Rachel either fell in love with Jacob too over this time, or at very least, she was not unwilling to marry him. Uh, and so the text isn't really specific, but we can kind of make a, a, a decent guess that way. Before we move on, let's again pause to remember the situation Jacob has made for himself. Remember who he was supposed to be. Jacob is a rich man, not just doing okay. I mean, he is the wealthiest guy in his region if he was in his region, but he's not. Remember, he's the patriarch now over a great house in Canaan, except for that he's not. He's a powerful sheik, except for that he's not. He should have been all these things. He was in reality all of these things, but like the prodigal son in the New Testament, he finds himself penniless in a faraway land, forced into servitude under an uncaring, unbelieving master. Why? Because he went his own way, because he wasn't willing to wait, because he wasn't willing to go in the direction that God had led. God had made all of these promises even when uh, he was in his mother's womb saying, hey, this is what's going to happen, and I'm going to, you know, the, the older is going to serve the younger and all these different things. And instead, because he was unwilling to go God's way and because he was unwilling to submit himself to what God had said, now he finds himself prodigalized way out far, hundreds and hundreds of miles from where he should be, penniless and effectively an indentured servant to this man who doesn't care about him, doesn't care about the Lord, doesn't care about his future. What a mess. Uh, it, we, we focus on the, you know, the, the love story in this passage because because it's nice to focus on a love story, and we focus on the scandal that's about to unfold because it's hard not to, but what a mess. Look at what Jacob has done to himself. Is this really what God wants for him? Remember, he's 70 years old at least. Does God the Father really want Jacob to be a 70-year-old man just slaving for some unbelieving Laban? He has said outright that that's not what he wants for him, that he wants him to be in the land of Canaan, pro being, you know, prosperous and being used by God and all these different things. But this situation is one that Jacob made for himself. And so we want to remind ourselves that 
that, well, often we're convinced that God is going to withhold something from us and, or, or that He isn't moving fast enough or at the proper speed or that we know the best way to a better life for ourselves and our family. But that attitude is exactly what landed Jacob and the prodigal in their predicaments and their bad predicaments. Meanwhile, God our Father wants life for us and that more abundantly. And so we, we just need to believe what the Bible says and believe what the Lord has told us and trust Him and wait for Him and follow His leading even when we think we know a shortcut to a better life. Because when we try to cut our own path through life, it only leads to disappointment and disaster and destruction around us. It just leads to a bunch of wasted life, wasted time, wasted opportunities. Verse 19 says, Laban replied, better I give her to you than some other man. Stay with me. Laban certainly doesn't come off like father of the year when he's talking about his daughters. He also doesn't exactly sign on the dotted line, does he? He doesn't really say he's going to do what Jacob wants to do. It's pretty vague. That's because he's hatching a plan, and he sees that he has Jacob on the hook. He's got Jacob exactly where he wants him. Verse 20 So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. This is one of the most captivating verses in all the Old Testament, one of the great ones. Uh, It's such a beautiful sentiment. Of course, when only applied to Jacob, it becomes a little tarnished by his shortcomings and by the scandal that we're about to read. But take this verse and then remind yourself that This verse of Holy Scripture uncovers just the smallest sliver of Christ's love for you. It is an unfailing, unlimited, passionate, active love. Remember, Jesus said in the Gospels, my Father is still working and I am working also. What is He working for? What is is God doing? in the business of? What is he busy doing day in and day out? Like Jacob in this verse, the Lord works tirelessly for you because of his great love for you. And not for seven years. Man, seven years is a long time. Oh no, the Lord's not working for seven years. More like 6,000 years from our perspective. Before time began, actually, in eternity past, the Lord began to do this good work uh, to love you and to save you and to make you His own. Of course, the Bible says that uh, from heaven's perspective, these thousands of years are like a few days to God. So we we look and we say, man, it's been thousands of years of human history, and, and the Lord says it seems like a few days to me as He works for us and as He reaches out for us and as he, as he just loves and loves and loves us. And so from heaven's perspective, it seemed like only a few days because of God's great love for us. And Jesus has done so much more than herd a few flocks of sheep. Yeah, Jacob's working hard, don't get me wrong, but at the end of the day, he's herding sheep and watering them and feeding them and making sure they're okay. That's a lot of work, but that's nothing in comparison to the kind of work that the Lord has done for you and He continues to do for you. For the joy set before Him, you, uh, Jesus Christ endured the cross, crucifixion, giving uh, His own life, pouring out His own blood so that you could be saved. You were worth that job. There are certain jobs that nobody wants to do and yet there's people who do them, right? Uh, 
somebody stands, uh, somebody once said this, somebody's always standing behind the elephant with the shovel, right, at the circus. Nobody wants that job, but we always find someone who's willing to do it because they say, well, I need a job and X, Y, and Z. What job are you willing to do for your family, right? Or what job would you be willing to do for a million dollars a year? Everybody would have kind of a different threshold of grossness, difficult, danger, those sorts of things. If you ever watch that show, The Deadliest Catch, that was on, you know, they, the guys make a significant amount of money in like a nine-week span of time, but is it worth it? Like, I think most of us would say, oh, I'm not doing that job. It's too hard. It's too dangerous. It's, it's not worth it. And so we think about what Christ has done, what what he was willing to do for you because of his love for you. You are worth that job. You are worth him putting on flesh and becoming the God-man and remaining the God-man forever. You were worth him coming to first century Israel. And no electricity, no plumbing, no bathroom facilities, no refrigeration, no anything. More importantly, God of, God of all the universe coming, you know, to be born in a, in a, in a stable and, and to have no notoriety and to be hated and spat upon, to be conspired against, to have one of his own disciples betray him. All of these things that Christ has done, he says, yeah, you are worth that job. I'll do it. And then I'm going to keep working and working and working and working and working and working and working from our perspective day in and day out because that's how much I love you. And he's still waiting. He's still working out of his love for you, waiting for the consummation of all of that work when his bride will finally be presented to him in eternity. And so uh, hung out on this verse for a little bit, but I think it's worth it because of the great love of our Savior Verse 21, and Jacob said to Laban, since my time is complete, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So it seems like Laban was dragging his feet and that kind of, that day passed on the calendar. Uh, he wasn't paying attention or he wasn't keeping track or maybe he was and he was just trying to milk it for all it's worth. But Jacob, man, he was counting down the days. Uh, he's making the marks on the wall. He's, he's etching an X on each day of the calendar and we see that he already considered Rachel to be his wife. And of course, most of you know that in the biblical culture, once you were betrothed, it was as if you were legally married, though not all the way married. And so we see that he already considered Rachel to be his wife. But notice this, even before the Mosaic law, even in these primitive, very loosely administered times, God's people did not have sex before marriage. Listen, God's righteous standard for sexual activity has always been the same. That standard is met only and always in the confines of monogamous heterosexual marriage. Anything else is rebellion against our God, our, our Father, our Creator, and it falls short of His standard and His command. And so the, the Word of God just lays this out very plainly. Uh, our culture, like just about every culture in human history, rebels against that and, uh, and acts in an affront to God, but this is God's righteous standard. Verse 22, so Laban invited all the men of the place and sponsored a feast. That evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and he slept with her. 
And Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave. So this wedding feast was a big deal. It would last for seven days. I don't think we can overestimate how scandalous this trick of Laban's really was. Uh, Aside from the immediate personal problems, right? Let's start where sort of where the text starts. It starts with this big party with everybody from the community being invited, right? Think of how uh, embarrassed and, and scandalized Jacob would have been from that time forward any time he was around any of these other men in this community. He had been made a public spectacle, a patsy. They all knew what was happening, or at least they would have known the day after. And these are the people that Jacob has to rub elbows with. Uh, This is, you know, maybe you've been conned at some point in your life. You don't usually have to spend the rest of your life living with the guy who conned you, right? Uh, And so this this is such an embarrassing scene. Now, Leah, for her part, must have been a willing participant in the plan. She could have revealed herself that night in the tent, but she didn't. It seems that she had fallen in love with Jacob herself. Later in this chapter, in just a few verses, you can see that she pines for his love and she hopes to win his love through childbirth. She says, oh man, now my husband will love me. And so it seems that she has fallen in love with Jacob herself, and perhaps that's why she went along with it, not to mention the fact that you know, in this time and culture, ladies weren't really able to just say no to their father, but um, we have to conclude that she was at least a willing participant. Now, people are, commentators are quick to say that, well, Leah was veiled and the tent was dark and Jacob was probably drunk. Okay, we'll never know exactly what happened and that's okay. But seeing what we know from the text, isn't it telling that Jacob didn't even take a moment to look into those pale eyes of Leah's? which would have immediately given her away. There's a lot of problems going on in this story, and it's not just Laban causing the problems. There's something more important going on here than the scandal, though, and that's a biblical principle that still applies to you and me today. And that principle is this, a person will reap what they sow. We're scandalized by what happens to Jacob, but it was the just retribution for what he had done to his father. God is a God of justice. He is a God who, is a, who rewards and retributes based off of the things that people do. He is a God of discipline. He's a God who cares very much about the choices that we make and the way that we conduct ourselves. What had happened a few passages ago? Well, Jacob's mother had convinced him to steal his sibling's identity and deceive a man who could not see in order to secure his financial future. And now the exact same thing is happening to Jacob. He's reaping what he sowed. Now Leah's father is saying, take your sibling's identity and go and deceive a man who cannot see you so that you can secure your financial future. It's the exact same thing. Paul spells out this eternal truth very plainly to us in Galatians 6. Remember, this is not just a story about Jacob. I mean, this is the Word of God, the revelation of God sent to you and me as the people of God 
don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, he will also reap, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. And so being a believer does not exempt us from this rule. In fact, if anything, it is applied even more to us because those the Lord loves, He chastens. Those he, the Lord loves, He disciplines. And so we will reap what we sow in life. So sow to the Spirit. Uh, don't be afraid of God. Just say, well, man, the Lord is going to let me harvest in my life, so why don't I harvest good things from the Spirit of God by going the way of God? Because remember what the Lord wants. He says, I want abundant life for you. I want spiritual fruit to be just overflowing your life. I want your cup to run over with all sorts of good blessings from heaven. And we want what God wants, and so so to the Spirit. Verse 25 when morning came, there was Leah. And so he said to Laban, Why, uh, what have you done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? Jacob is shocked and confused naturally, but his own words provide the answer he's looking for, at least spiritually. Linguists point out the fact that the same word that he uses for deceived is the word used to describe what he did to his own father a few passages ago. But of course, the schemer isn't happy when the scheme is played on him. We understand, but he's answering his own question. Verse 26, Laban answered, it's not the custom in our country to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Complete the week of wedding celebration, and we will also give you this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. Man, Laban is stone cold. Are you serious? Like, it's, he's the one that did it. It's all obvious. It's all out in the open. And look how casual he is about all of this. No apology, no smoothing things over. Uh, he's just, man, ruthless. He just conned this guy, made him a sucker in front of the entire community. And now he has the guts to say, and you're going to work for me for seven more years. How do you like that? Man, this guy, he means business. In the end, Jacob would work 14 years so that he could marry Rachel which is four times the going rate for the bride price. But interestingly, he'd effectively end up with four wives, uh, his two wives, the, the two daughters, but then Bilhah and Zilpah, the, the slaves, also become concubines, also serve sort of as wives. So he did four times the bride price and came out with four ladies, and it works out real, real bad for everybody. Laban is another one of those v terrible Bible dads, uh, there are a few guys in the running for worst dad in the Bible. Lot is probably the worst dad. I mean, he's, 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 he's the, the reigning champ, right? If you want to come at being the worst dad in the Bible, Lot's the guy you got to fight off. Jephthah and, frankly, David are on that list, as far as I'm concerned, as worst Bible dads. But Laban is too. As one commentator points out, he effectively ensures that his two precious daughters would live out their days in animosity and resentment and rivalry. Think about what he's setting up for his two daughters. It's clear he has, has no affection for them, no, no care for them. He's unloading them like a cow and a lamb. That's what he named them after, right? Just get rid of these ladies, and I don't care if they're going to be at each other's throats for the next 50 years. What problem is that of mine? My goal is to get whatever I can out of their fiancé. Not a good dad. So what would Jacob do? Verse 28, and Jacob did just that. Hold there. What could he do? What, what's he going to do? 
He's in love with Rachel. He's in a foreign land. He's got no friends there. Who would he petition for help? Who would he complain to? Everyone would have just said, forget it, Jake. It's Heron town. And he wouldn't have been able to, to, to get any kind of help from anyone. Plus, how could Jacob complain after thinking about what he had done to his father? He did this same thing. There's a great scene in the classic movie, The Sting, where the villain tries to cheat Paul Newman at a game of poker, but Paul Newman's character cheats him first. And so while the bad guys are trying to figure out what to do, the boss shouts out, what was I supposed to do? Call him for cheating better than me? And he couldn't. And he's just like, yeah, I guess he just cheated better than me. And effectively, that's what happened to Jacob, the schemer. He got, he got cheated better than he expected. It was time for him to face what he had done. It was time for him to reap what he had willingly sown. Verse 28 continues, he finished the week of celebration and Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, as his wife. And Laban gave his slave Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her slave. Jacob slept with Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. So Jacob didn't have to wait seven more years before he married Rachel. Um, They had their seven-day wedding celebration, and then they just tied the knot at the end of that week. And then Jacob worked seven more years after that as sort of to pay off the debt of getting Rachel. But 14 years in total is what he owed to Laban under their agreement. And so we see a great story of romance uh, was sullied by selfishness. It reminds us that even good things will be invariably corrupted if we don't walk with the Lord. I mean, Jacob's love for Rachel is a great thing and it should be something to be celebrated. And instead, it's, it's tarnished and corrupted and sullied because he wasn't seeking the Lord. He wasn't a man of prayer. He wasn't going God's way. And so even a, a great and wonderful thing of his love for Rachel ended up being sullied by sin. Everything had been going so well as far as Jacob was concerned, but suddenly he's got himself set up for a lifetime of strife and family trouble and emotional baggage, and they're going to go through it and it's going to be tough for them. So how does this story speak to us in the here and now of our modern experience? In a variety of ways, but a couple that, that came to my mind. First, it certainly shows us how not to treat the family around us. And I don't just mean our blood relatives, but the family of faith. When we live for self, when we are always looking for our own benefit, when we're thinking about how we can extract something for ourselves at the cost of others, when we follow convention or our own desires instead of the Lord's leading, well, then things are going to wreck and people are going to become commoditized and collateralized and it's just going to be a problem all around. Christians should never interact with each other the way that Jacob and Laban and Leah and all the guests at this party are acting. Everybody's just living for self and and look at the scandal and look at the ruin and look at the resentment and the bitterness that is the result. The Christian life is about serving others and honoring others and speaking the truth to them and not manipulating and not cheating and not trying to pull a fast one on them. But being people full of love and full of grace and full of just openness so that we can grow together instead of try to get on top of one another through weird scheming. Second, this story may be old, but the principle of reaping what you sow is still current and always will be. Our conduct matters. Our choices matter. 
The Lord wants to lead us down a path that leads to fulfillment and spiritual abundance and peace and joy and all these things. But if we want those things, which we do, well, then we have to sow to the Spirit and cultivate accordingly. You're going you're gonna to reap what you sow. And the Lord wants us to reap just bountiful, wonderful things uh, from His storehouses of grace. And so we need to sow those things and cultivate accordingly. And the third message from this text is the most important, and so that's what we'll end on. Again, consider God's incredible love for you. Strip away the scandal and the shortcomings and the conning and all these things, and remember Jacob's incredible love for Rachel. It was an incredible love. But more importantly, consider God's incredible love for you. Jacob's passionate, sacrificial, hardworking love for Rachel is nothing compared to how God feels about you. He has worked for you from before the foundation of the earth. He didn't just clock in for a certain number of days to meet a requirement. He laid down his life. And unlike Jacob, he wasn't coerced or tricked into taking you, right? We're not some Leah in his mind. Uh, that he never wanted and got saddled with by somebody. No, the Lord has loved you always, and his love for you does not abate. He is still working hard for you day by day, waiting patiently for that moment when we are finally presented to him, and knowing that that day is coming because it is coming where we're going to be presented as the bride of Christ in eternity. Knowing that day is coming, Let's reflect often on the significance of God's personal love for us and keep ourselves ready for the day that He finally comes to take us home and make us His own. Amen?